Good Friday, the ultimate sacrifice occurred. Christ atoned for our sin. This was to show that sin matters and something had to be done about it. What sin did was ultimately separate us from God. But what happened on Good Friday paves a way for the resurrection. For in it, in, on Good Friday, what the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what it did was give us access and forgiveness. It gave us access into the presence of our God, of our King, of the glorious one who sits on the throne. It gave us access to the immediate presence of God, the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. It provided forgiveness, forgiveness of sin, forgiveness for sin that you and I can never clean. Forgiveness of sin that, that you and I could never get rid of and that we would be in bondage to until our death. That sin was taken away. Victory over death and victory over our sin was what was provided on Good Friday for us. We always repeat it and we always say it. If it's not Christ who atones for our sin, if it is not Christ who forgives our sin, then who will? Someone will have to pay for sin. But on that cross on Good Friday, it was Christ who gave us access and who forgave our sin. The happenings of Good Friday, my friends, are of supreme importance because it focus, uh, focuses the church's attention. As Christians, we were once dead to our sin, but now we're made alive in Christ. For the death and judgment we deserved was placed upon Christ and the glorious words that Jesus spoke on, on that cross, it is finished didn't mean that he was finished. It means that his mission, his work, the goal, the plan that was sketched out for our salvation was completed. Mission accomplished. But it didn't end there. It didn't end on that cross. It didn't end in the grave. On Sunday morning, Anxious visitors, anxious people went to the tomb. Most of the synoptics and the gospels take into account the women that went running to the tomb to look for this body. And in Mark, if we open up our Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 16, that resurrection morning goes a little something like this. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to, to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They expected to see their Lord and Savior laying in the tomb. What they got was an empty tomb. And what they got was a mission, a mission to proclaim that there was an empty tomb and that Jesus Christ had risen and that he was no longer there. The effects of the cross, the, the glorious nature of the cross and, and that moment in the tomb, those brief moments, those brief days in the tomb gave the church gave God's people a message of eternal proclamation, something that we will never be tired of saying up until his return. There are other messages, there's other gospels, there's other things that could be said continuously but we would grow bored of. There's one thing that we cannot grow weary of and that is the continuous proclamation of the risen lamb, the risen king, Jesus. That was the message out of the tomb. He is not here. And the message that the church and the apostles of the early church carried, they preached Christ, Christ crucified. They preached an empty tomb. They preached a risen Lord, Jesus. That is why he takes the name Lord. It was the Old Testament name Yahweh, which was the leader, the king of Israel. It is now given to Jesus upon his resurrection. He is Lord. He is King because he is not dead and because he is not in that tomb. Those glorious words from that angel, he has risen. He is not here. At the resurrection of the suffering servant of Good Friday, the one who humbled himself throughout his, that week of the passion and throughout his entire life up until Good Friday, serving humbly, he is now exalted to the highest position of honor by his Father. He fulfilled his mission on Good Friday. He was our sacrifice. Today, and forever, he is our king. The glorious position of Christ is repeated throughout the entire New Testament. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, the opening verses bring the majestic reign of Christ into perspective. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed 
heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is king and this is provided for us because he has resurrected there's many kings in history that still lay within their tombs we have a living reigning eternal king found in jesus christ the kingship of christ was always anticipated was always foreshadowed back in the old testament scriptures we read about the 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 eternal reign of our christ We read about this king. Friends, we don't only see this from an eternal perspective. It was the same son of God in the Godhead who humbled himself and went to a cross. And upon his resurrection as the God-man, he becomes king. It was always anticipated in Exodus chapter 15. If we go back to Exodus, we can read this anticipation. And God says to the people of Israel, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Verse 18, The Lord will reign forever and ever. That Lord, Yahweh, is the name of Lord taken by Jesus Christ. He is the Lord that will reign forever. It was always anticipated in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, we the the people of Israel lived under a divine theocracy. The people of Israel understood what it was to be governed by a king. And their king was Yahweh. And their king was God. And their king was the Lord. As we read in our scripture. They were his people. They were his kingdom. He governed the kingdom of Israel. God's people were subjects to this king. They were servants of this great and mighty king, the creator of all the universe. He is the one that governed them. He was their liberator. He was their protector. He was their lawgiver. Even within the law that God had given his people, it stipulated how they were to live before God and how they were to live with each other. God had made a perfect way. God had made a, a way for the people to live pleasing God and how to live with each other. God, the king of Israel, the, the king of his people, he was their provider. He gave them. He provided for them. And this was seen early on after the exodus. He provided nourishment. He provided shelter. And he provided them with the right way of worship. It was in this provision that God, the king of his people, provided a way for the kingdom to sustain itself. He implemented what we hate nowadays, taxes. However, the taxes of Israel were tithes and they were a blessing for the people of Israel because they lived within a kingdom. And this tithe, in some occasions, accumulated to 27% of their income. But it was to sustain proper 
worshipped early on in the tabernacle and in the later events of their life in the temple. It was this tithe and these taxes that were collected to provide a proper and correct way to worship God. It also sustained the poor. It also was a way that the kingdom of God can help those in need. God provided. God was their king. And when the people asked for their own king, God would then govern them through these mediatorial kings or vice regents of God over the land. All the kings that governed over God's people, however, fell short as they disobeyed God. They ended up splitting the kingdom of God. Foreign powers came in and pagan kings subjected God's people to their kingdom. They eventually destroyed the temple, the place of worship, and they were ultimately kicked out of their own land. No temple, no land, no king. They were subjects once more. They were servants of pagan kings and pagan gods. These kings turned the people's attention away from God, away from Yahweh, away from their Lord, and turned their attention and focus to pagan gods. Some of the kings of Israel ended up offering sacrifices to these gods with their own sons' lives. They were once again slaves, something that they had been liberated from. This is why in 1 Samuel chapter 8, there's a petition to, to Samuel early on, the prophet Samuel, the kingdom people. Ask Samuel, give us a king. And to Samuel, this was an abomination because up until that point, the people of God were governed by God as their king. In essence, this is a rejection of God's hand and presence within his people through the life of Samuel, but what they asked for was very clearly defined. Give us a king like the other nations. In a sense, they were breaking the commandments of God by becoming idol worshipers, by wanting to be like the other nations. It was in this desire that God protects his people. Because in the Old Testament, before Samuel's time, it was anticipated that the people of God would ask for a king. It was already anticipated in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, that the kingdom of Israel would ask for a king and it would be fine as long as this king would govern according to God. God put out the stipulations for this type of king. And in between verses 14 and 20, the instructions were that this king, in verse 15, would be of God's own choosing. He would choose the king, not the people. He would be the one who would put the king on the earth. This was not a democratic environment. This was not the people electing and going to the voting polls to vote on their king. This was God saying, I will appoint a king over my people because I know my people and I know what they need. 
This king would be from the Israel nation, the nation of Israel. He would be an Israelite. This king, in verse 16, would not acquire many horses. Now, what does that mean? This king would not be like the other nations. His power would not lie within his army. This is evident, friends, if you, if you have read the Old Testament, you've read stories of how in many occasions God went before Israel's army and defeated their enemy without any attack, without any need of bloodshed on the kingdom of Israel. And so this king would not require many horses, would not gain his authority or power by his military strength. This king, in verse 17, would not acquire many wives or excess of silver and gold. What this king would avoid would be the luxuries of the pagan kings. He would not be like the other kings. He would not govern as they do with lavish and, and, and pomp and, and have over the, uh, the, themselves as an idol over their people by acquiring many wives and showing everyone his worth and power by them and by the money that he had accumulated. His worth would not be found in the gold and silver that he has. If you take this into the eternal perspective of the kingdom, gold will be on the floor of God's kingdom. Verses 18 through 20, the most important aspect of this king that God would choose for his people, according to Deuteronomy, would be that this king would submit to God's law. He would write down the law. He would write down God's word and he would live by God's word and he would teach the people to do the same. This is the type of king that God had anticipated and that God had had planned for his people. However, the people of God did not want that type of king. They wanted to choose their king and so they got what they asked for within the first three reigning kings of israel the people of god that required and that requested a king their kings fell completely short of these requirements these kings starting off with number one saul was a disobedient king who did not listen to God's word and lived off his own arrogance, seeking magicians and false prophets for guidance. In David, though we see David as one of the greatest kings in Israel, David, however, fell short and could not create the temple of God because of his arrogance. He took up a census. He wanted to see the mighty vastness of his kingdom and his armies. David fell short. And what, what, do we, what would we say about King Solomon, David's son? Solomon accumulates much wisdom because God had given him that wisdom. But in that, he falls short because pride And arrogance snuck in and he accumulated for himself many wives and concubines. 
and he accumulated for himself, because of this, many riches. All of this was part of God's anti-type of design. This was what the kingdoms around Israel looked like. This was not supposed to be what God's people would look like. They were not to have a king like the nations. As a matter of fact, in Genesis, way back in the first book of the Bible, God had already anticipated this king that would come from none other than the tribe of Judah. Not from the Benjamites, which were warlike people, but from the worship people. The people that praised God. The people that knew what it was to worship God. The people in charge of praise and worship in the tabernacle and in the temple. This king, Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It would come from Judah. Saul was not from Judah. That was their first king. They all fell short in comparison to what God had stipulated. Only one king only one man could fulfill that calling. That great and high priestly, kingly honor and glorious position could only be filled by a man that would come from the tribe of Judah. And this king would provide a future hope for his people, for God's people. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, talking about the kingdom of Judah, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah repeats the same sentiment in Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. It comes from the tribe of Judah. Prophet Isaiah, if we go back to Isaiah, it, he makes this even more clear that he will, though David was part of the tribe of Judah, this king would be greater than David. In, 11, in chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1 and 2, it's a clear anticipation of this. There shall come forth from the shoot, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah goes back to the stump or the shoot of Jesse. Who is Jesse? He is the father of David. And so in this, we see that the son coming from the lineage of Judah initiates with Jesse 
And by claiming Jesse, the prophet, what he is saying is that this mention of this greater king is greater than the son of Jesse, David. This coming king is greater than David, and this coming king is Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, Jesus is fighting with the Pharisees, and he makes them well aware that their son of David will call him Lord. If you look at Mark 12, 35 through 37, at the end Jesus says, David calls him Lord. The people were anticipating the son of David. Many who saw Jesus in his early ministry called him son of David. But in fact, he's greater than David. He is a greater king. This is the king that God had anticipated and paved the way for from the very beginning. God had made a plan for this king. And he would be born a king. In Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, this king and this anticipated king would come in and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, again, he takes the name that belongs to the kingdom of God's people in the Old Testament and it is imposed over this new king. He is God now reigning over the earth. In Matthew chapter 1 and in chapter 2, the, the Magi come looking, where is this king? Where is he? The son of David. At his birth, there is an immediate challenge to every other earthly kingdom. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2 of Matthew, we have King Herod who hears that there is in search, that people are in search for another king. And in his jealousy, and because he is threatened by this coming kingdom or coming king, he seeks to destroy and murder and get out of the way all the young male children under two years old because he is threatened by the coming king. He is threatened by the coming kingdom. There cannot be any opposition, friends. Christ is king and every other kingdom and every other ruler and every other institution that takes that place is put low, is put down. That's what we read in Psalm chapter 2. God laughs at those kingdoms. They are subservient and they bow to the face of King Jesus. There can be no other challenge. There can be no other kingdom. There can be no other king. It's only Christ the king. Only him. No other. The people themselves throughout the ministry of Jesus identified him as a king. And though we get this feel within Jesus' life, especially throughout the Gospel of Mark, where he, he is not fully embracing this, this king nature, he fully is aware of his authority. 
But when he is here as the God-man, as we will read at the end of our time together, when he is here as the God-man, he, he separates himself from that authority. He humbles himself from that position. But the people themselves identify him as king. We read about this on Good Friday in Mark chapter 11. The triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. People bowed down and worshipped the king. And they identified him as the son of David in Mark chapter 11 verses 7 through 11. But these same people who identified him as a king. Along with others rejected mocked and crucified him as king. Even the Roman governor, Pilate, asks him, are you this king? And in a sense of authority, he crucifies him with the title king over his head. He is handed over as a king and is murdered. This king, this Jesus, when he comes here, he comes preaching about a kingdom. This is what the people of God anticipated. This is the kingdom of God of the Old Testament. This is what they wanted. This is what they were seeking for. And Christ, Jesus, upon his ministry here on earth, brings this kingdom to the start. It is a kingdom that is introduced in the life of Jesus Christ, but it is a kingdom that is not completely fulfilled. It is the kingdom of the already, not yet. Jesus comes in, ushering in this kingdom, and he comes preaching repentance and the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, he calls the people to repent because the kingdom is at hand. It is a kingdom that comes in putting all of our other kingdoms on check and even the demonic kingdom of this world is subservient to the kingdom of Christ. For in Mark chapter 12, we see him casting out demons. He is Lord over the demons. He is king over the demonic kingdom. Jesus ushers in this kingdom, but it is not the final resurrection kingdom that we will all see one day but it is the start and this is the anticipation of that future kingdom a future kingdom that Daniel in the Old Testament says a kingdom that is unshakable an eternal kingdom that cannot be destroyed that will last forever Jesus understood this here on earth as a spiritual kingdom when he is asked in John chapter 18 he says my kingdom is not of this world it's spiritual but there will be a moment in time where that kingdom comes down he is king He is declared king at his resurrection. Though the son was always eternally in the Godhead king over everything, over all the nations, over all the universe. It was at his resurrection that as the God-man, he is exalted. You see, we don't get this kingdom concept from the words of Jesus completely. Though he understood it, it isn't anticipated in the Gospels. It is what 
we see from the New Testament writers that affirm this king. So let me correct my, what I just said. I, he does anticipate this in the rest of the New Testament, but he doesn't live his life in accordance to it. It is about the resurrection time where he is invested with the kingship, an eternal kingship. And the New Testament writers in the epistles affirm this upon Jesus. He is now resurrected. The resurrection is what gives us the king. We know that Jesus was always king eternally. The son of God was always an eternal king from eternity past. But it was when he was here that at his resurrection, he is made king over everything and over everyone. After his resurrection, Jesus says in Matthew Chapter 28, right before the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is affirming the call of that resurrection. Authority is his. Friends, the church is not left alone to squander and to seek for food on herself. The, the, the church has not been abandoned. The church has not been left to fend and protect herself. The church has a king. And that king is Jesus. And that king is everlasting. And that king comes about because that king has resurrected. All authority has been given to him. Everything under earth and heaven has been given to him. He is declared the king. In Romans chapter 1, he was declared the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul clearly emphasizes that. And that becomes part of Paul's theme on speaking of Jesus from this from that moment forward he is lord because he resurrected he is now um, in a place of authority at the right hand of god ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 and first peter chapter 3 verse 22 call him out and say that he is seated at the right hand and all things have been subjected to him and consequently friends we the church, being united with Christ, have ascended with him as well. See, we are not alone. We don't fight our battles alone. We are united with the resurrected king, with Jesus Christ. He rules the universe. The perfect picture of this is painted in Colossians chapter 1 in that majestic portion of scripture between verses 15 and 20 when, when Paul says that all things were created by him and they were for him and subject to him. Then he says in verse 17, he sustains all things. Christ the king, ruler of the cosmos and ruler of his church, is the sustainer of this world and the sustainer of this church. Friends, this pandemic here is allowed by Christ the King. He is 
governing. And he is in control. And this has not taken him by surprise. He is not like us. He sustains all things. In verses 18 through 20, Paul says that he redeems his church. He is not only the head of the cosmos, he is the head of his church. And he reconciles all things by the blood of his Christ. He is the redeemer of his church. He is reigning and active and in the universe and in the church, he controls. He is fully in control because he is king. So therefore, we confess as Christians, our confession is of vast importance because only when we've identified ourselves as slaves, as subjects of this king, do we know we have this new life and new identity in Christ. That's why this is confessional when we can say the resurrected Christ is our king, is our Lord. It provides us with the identity of what it means to be a servant of God. Paul says this very clearly in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We are saved on our confession. We are saved because we've identified ourselves with this king and us, his slaves. Acts chapter 16, the same thing is repeated. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We can't believe in a kingdom if we are the kings of our own world because it will be in constant battle. Acts chapter 20, verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Once again, proving the fact that God is in control of our own salvation. And if it is not through the Holy Spirit that we can make this confession, then we will be on the side of the others that say, Jesus Christ isn't king. Jesus is accursed. And there's many people that live today saying that same thing. Second Corinthians, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Friends, Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king. And this kingship carries, is, is, is birthed at this resurrection power moment. And that resurrection power and Christ, establishing Christ as eternal king has eternal consequences. These eternal consequences are a result of this resurrection. It has everlasting effects to those who confess and have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. That's why we will call you to confess, to come to Christ and believe that he is king and know that he is Lord of your life. His resurrection assures our regeneration. This new birth, this new life that we have is assured by the resurrection. First Peter chapter 1 says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ didn't raise, our regeneration and our new life would not 
be effective. The resurrection gives us a new life, a new way of living, a new life that has been earned for us. Constantly, continuously repeated in the New Testament, we hear Paul say in Romans, we were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that Jesus as Christ was to be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk with a newness of life. And he repeats this in Ephesians, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Friends, how are we going to survive in this world that is still being led and permitted for sin to be in control? How are we going to survive against this sinful nature? How are we going to survive against a world that hates us, that hates Christianity? How are we going to survive as a church when we are constantly bombarded by the one who is roaming around as a roaring lion seeking who to devour? How are we supposed to survive? We are supposed to survive through the power of his resurrection. Friends, the resurrection sustains the church because Christ is king and he holds us in his hands. And he has given us that power to survive in a fallen world because that same power that raised him from the dead is in us. Paul says in Romans 7, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We have the power to show this new life here in a sinful world. And friends, it assures our, our justification. We have been justified by the death of Christ, but it is sealed at the cross and at his resurrection. The perfect sacrifice was completed and there is no more reason for guilt to exist. We have been approved by Christ. And because Christ approves us and unites us, the Father approves of us as well. We were raised for our justification, as Paul says in Romans 4. Now, friends, read with me these last and final words in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. This great hymn of the church. Starting off in verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That was the humble servant, Christ. But when he resurrected, verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all names so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus, say it with me, Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The, world, the one that the world rejected, the one that the world mocked, the one that the world killed is now highly exalted by God the Father who gave him a name above every other name. And friends, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Friends, he is the king of this church Forever. He is our king forever. And this king, friends, is coming back. This is the Christ we preach. Our king. Happy Resurrection Sunday, friends. Pray with me this morning. Father, as we look to you and to your divine plan unfold, we come to you in this wonderful awe and astonishment of who you are and what you have done for us. For providing your church and your sons and daughters a king, an everlasting king, and welcoming us into this kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are part of your kingdom, your glorious kingdom, and we honor you, exalt you. Name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.